Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 12 through 17. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, that sword of the spirit is uh, needed this morning. It's uh, needed for your people to uh, cut out what remains in us that needs to be cut out, to, to cut to heal. We pray, Father, that you, you would send out your word as a living and active and spiritual power, as a substance, that when it meets the power of your spirit in our minds and hearts, it changes us. And we look to you to do that. We can't produce that with human techniques or entertainments or anything else. It's just you and the Word and the Spirit. So do that now, Father. In your name we ask it. Amen. Um, I always uh, dread preaching on the devil and on spiritual issues because <clears throat> he always um, makes my life harder when I do this, and uh, I thought I was going to get away with it this time around because, you know, the last two weeks haven't been too bad, and then just kind of last night really felt a, a heavy spiritual oppression. I've told you before that there is a demon that lives in my house right over a sink full of dirty dishes, and, um, and he whispers ugly things into my ears while I'm washing those dishes, and uh, he was wound up last night, so... Pray for me, and I'll pray for you. Um, for the last two weeks, we, we looked at our enemy, our real enemy, that is the devil and his angels or the demons. And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's what we're told in this passage. In other words, the human beings who hate us, the human beings who oppose us, are not our real enemy. And we need to understand that because we are now entering into a period in history where we are going to be increasingly hated just for belonging to Jesus. And if you're at, at all active on social media and you get anything outside of your little bubble of preferences, you will find very quickly that there, there are many people out there that hate God, that hate Christianity, and that hate Christians. They think that we're bad people, all right? Those people are not our enemies. They are actually in a most pitiable state. They are blinded. They are exploited. They are used by Satan who hates their guts. 
and he desires their destruction. They are prisoners of the devil, and they are held by a chain of their own lusts and desires and blindness. They are also potentially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And part of our job is to be God's agents in rescuing them as he leads us. And so spiritual warfare is not just tied up with making sure nothing goes bump in the night in your house. It's not just tied up in fighting Satan within your own life and your own heart and your own thoughts. It is that, but it's also tied up in helping to liberate people from the oppression of the devil. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, historically speaking, their attacks have always been a great opportunity for genuine Christian witness and for evangelism. Anytime the, the, the worldlings hate and come after the Christians in any kind, of a, any kind of a way with any kind of teeth to it, whether it would be monetary or judicial or prison or beatings or anything, there, there is a great opportunity there for effective Christian witness and evangelism. And I want you to notice a couple of things that are huge clues to how we are to fight our battles. First, please notice that the word stand or some derivative of the word stand occurs four times in this little passage. Verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. Verse 13 again, stand firm. And verse 14, stand therefore. Do you get the idea Paul is emphasizing something here? Yes, he is. He is telling us that we are to stand. Now this word stand is not stand in the sense of stand around doing nothing. This is stand in the sense of take up a fortified position and brace for attack. Now secondly, I want you to notice please that we get an inventory list of our equipment and, and we get uh, told that we are issued a belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, Shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. So there are six pieces of equipment here. Five out of six are defensive. The only offensive weapon we get is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now thirdly, I want you to notice that there is no protective armor for your back. It is a breastplate of righteousness, not a backplate of righteousness. And so if you turn around during an attack and run away, those flaming arrows that are bouncing off of your breastplate and getting stuck in your shield will get shot into your back instead, and you'll just look like a flaming porcupine scurrying away from the devil and from the battle you should be in. So what uh, conclusions should we derive from these three basic facts? Well, I conclude this. A large part of spiritual warfare consists in being led by the Lord to a certain place, a certain position, 
certain portion of territory, a certain situation in life that Satan holds for himself, and then just occupying that territory for the Lord and refusing to surrender, refusing to back off. You just occupy that territory, you squat down, and you say, this is now God's by his direct order, and I'm going to defend this territory, and then you stand. You stand firm. You defend your position. In other words, lots of spiritual warfare, maybe even the bulk of spiritual warfare, is defensive, not offensive. And we're told that Satan has weapons too, right? Some of his weapons are mentioned. He has arrows, darts, flaming arrows. In, in, in the ancient world, there was this mysterious substance. We're still not quite sure what it was. It was called Greek fire, and it terrified everybody that messed with it. It was one of the ways the Byzantine Empire kept a very firm military hold on the Mediterranean world because they actually had ships that they could pump this stuff out like a flamethrower. And so the enemy ships would come, and in those days, the way that ships engaged each other in battle was just to run into each other and see who, who, who sunk first. Well, the, the sailors, the Greek sailors would come along, and they'd get close, and they'd think, okay, we're going to get rammed, and, and then they'd hose the other ship down with something like napalm. And, the, and they put that on their arrows, too. You could not put it out. Water would not put it out. And so these are the flaming arrows of the evil one. Think about arrows for a minute. That's a standoff weapon. That's not an up-close-and-in-your-face weapon. That's a, a standoff weapon. A good stout bow will launch an arrow over 300 yards. That's what Satan gets. Our weapon is a sword. That's a close-in weapon. A good bit of your duty as a soldier in Christ is just occupying whatever bit of spiritual territory God has assigned to you and just staying there stubbornly while the enemy takes pot shots at you from outside of your reach. Your marriage, loved ones, is a position that God gave you to defend. Parenthood is a bit of ground that God has given you to defend. This church is another bit of ground that God has given you to defend. So is your job or your business if you're a business owner. So is your community. So is your extended family. All of this is spiritual territory that God put you in the middle of and said, Satan took this from me millennia ago and I have launched an invasion and I'm going to take it all back. And this right here, this little patch right here, I want you to occupy for me. And I want you to defend it. And I want you to hold it for me. And don't back off. Your main task? Stand. Stand firm. Don't wander off during a lull in the battle. Don't run away. The gospel call is... Uh, for the vast majority of us, is a, is a call to stability. It's a call to give yourself to the place that God puts you and to bloom wherever you are planted, and you are to be vigilant, but basically unperturbed when you're attacked. You're not surprised. You're well-equipped for it. You're experienced from prior battles. <coughs> and so you don't worry too much about it that you're being attacked all the time. That's the normal course of the day. 
Of course you're being attacked. Of course you're being criticized. Of course people are trying to diminish you and sideline you and run you off. Of course you're tempted to discouragement and despair. Don't let it get to you. This is completely normal. This is the Christian life. It's a battle. In 1 Peter 4.12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now, why would Peter say, don't be surprised? Well, because there were a lot of people that were writing to Peter and saying, I am very surprised at this fiery trial that has come upon me, Peter. I thought my whole Christian life was going to be one of roses and sunshine. And now all of a sudden, I've got this fiery trial. Peter says, don't be surprised by that, as though something strange were happening to you. Instead, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, to simply stand and to own the space that God gave you is itself to fight a holy war. And to refuse to stand as he commanded is to be AWOL. And it's to be subject to his discipline and correction. (coughs) Here's the thing. Satan is going to wind up his servants to come after you. And you're going to expect that. And that is your great opportunity. Let me me say, say that to you again. When Satan's servants come after you because Satan has wound them up, that is your moment of great opportunity. That is such a crucial moment. You want to talk about the, the, the moment that uh, the outcome of a battle or the outcome of a war hinges on. That's that kind of moment. When the, uh, when the godless, when the unbeliever comes after you, that's your moment. He will kinder, kindle a hatred and a contempt for you in their hearts, and, and they will just be launching themselves at you. They will be enraged with you sometimes. Now, if you resist that, if you respond to that with hatred and contempt in return, well, then Satan just laughs because you've played right into his hands. You see, Jesus wants us to respond a different way. And we read about that way in Romans chapter 12, in, well, in many other places as well, but Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14, is, is a really good one where he just kind of lays it out. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So if the person attacks you, and you attack them back, then you've just done what every worldling expects you to do, and what they would do themselves. 
and nobody's surprised. And like I said, Satan laughs. But if, in the power of God, you get attacked and you return good and blessing in exchange, then the person attacking you has to think about what just happened. You did not do the expected thing. They have to come to terms somehow with the fact that you did not do what they themselves would have done if they were in your shoes. You did something different. You did something that's not only unexpected and different, you also did something they couldn't bring themselves to do or even to want to bring themselves to do. But they also are shocked by the beauty of it and the goodness of it, which is undeniable. And when you are attacked and you bless in return, because these people are not your enemies, the spirits motivating them are your enemies, when you bless, when you bless these people when they curse you, you create a space for God to work in their lives. Now that doesn't mean that you never ever meet force with force. The Bible is full of teachings about that. Uh, and you have to grow in wisdom and discernment to figure out when that's appropriate. But this spiritual skill that you and I are absolutely called to have in our toolbox and to make wise, regular use of is important. You are much more likely to be put into a position where you need to bless an enemy than you are to be put into a position where you need to shoot one who tries to rob you or break into your house. And, and by the way, this is why God gives you enemies at church. Did you know that? you're supposed to have enemies at church. All of my enemies are at church. I mean, that's just how it is, right? God gives you enemies at church because church is the training ground. Church is the practice field. Church is the place where your enemies are also instructed about how to treat you. And so God gives you enemies in the church so that speaking the truth with love, you get to practice overcoming evil with good and turning an enemy into a friend. Now, in the time we have left, let's think about, let's begin to examine our kit, as the British would say, our, our, our equipment inventory. Let's, let's just begin that process in the time that we have left. And the first thing that we're told that we have that we've been issued by God, is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. The Roman soldier wore a relatively long robe. Usually it came to just below his knee. And this belt, which was almost like a girdle, was a wide leather piece that went around the tummy more than it went around the waist. And it was probably a good six inches wide. And it served a couple of functions. It, it gathered the robe together, and it kept it in order, first of all. Second of all, when it was time for more urgent action, like running, the bottom of the robe could be pulled up from behind between your legs and tucked into that belt, and that would free up the legs for running. I had a, my father's cousin was a, a nun, and I remember when I was a kid, she came to visit us. And she was wearing her full nun regalia. And, uh, and I'd never met a nun before. I didn't know I was related to one. And so here's, here's my cousin, Jean, my second cousin, Jean. And uh, she likes to play basketball. 
And so uh, we're out in the, in the driveway playing basketball, and she comes out in her long habit, and she does just exactly that. She reaches down between her legs, and she pulls the thing up and tucks it into her belt. And so her big old hairy legs were hanging out in sandals, and she's playing basketball with us, because apparently nuns don't shave their legs either. And, uh, and we thought it was absolutely hilarious. Well, that's what you do when you wear clothing like that. And the Roman soldiers wore clothing like that, and that's what they did. They would tuck that into their belts. Lastly, it was an anchor point for much of the other armor. The sword hung on the belt. The bottom of the breastplate was fastened to the belt. And that thick leather around your tummy section was an added layer of protection for the visceral organs. And so the belt kind of tied the whole package together. And this belt, Jesus says, is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now, commentators from the earliest times have noted that we could take that in a couple of different ways. It could be truth, the belt of truth, in the sense of the revelation of God in Scripture and in Christ as the truth. In other words, true doctrine, true belief, true understanding of the facts on the ground. And Jesus did say, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It is the truth that enables us to stand against the devil's lies. If you don't know the truth and the devil tells you a lie, you're just going to accept that because you don't know any better. And Jesus says, no, we've got some truth here. And it needs to be a, an integral part of your life. But the Greek word could also refer to truth in terms of our own inward self. It could refer to sincerity. It could refer to integrity. Uh, maybe in the sense mentioned in Psalm 51.6 when David says, Surely you desire truth in my inmost parts. And of course the Christian must at all costs be one who is honest and truthful. Deceit and lying and scheming and intrigue and hypocrisy all belong to the, to the devil. That's his toolbox. And to traffic in those things is to play the devil's game with him, and we will never, ever beat the devil at his own game. The devil hates the truth. He loves the darkness. The light makes him flee. And so you're never going to be spiritually or even emotionally healthy unless you learn to think about yourself honestly in light of the truth. Well, which one is the correct sense? Is it truth as in doctrine or is it truth as in inward integrity? <clears throat> I don't think we have to choose. Listen to uh, Puritan minister William Gurnall. Some by truth mean truth and doctrine, Others will have it truth of heart or sincerity. They, I think, best that comprise both. One will not do without the other. So in other words, you can't have truth in your heart and speak lies about what, what God said or about what he said about himself. And you can't be full of true words and be corrupt on the inside and have any kind of a an effectiveness at all. You're rotten on the inside if that's going on with you. There's a second piece of equipment, and we're going to look at this morning, and that second piece of equipment is the breastplate 
of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, notice once again, it is a breastplate, not a backplate. You will be protected while you're fighting. You can even move backwards in a kind of a strategic withdrawal, which might be necessary from time to time. But the Lord offers no protection for cowards who turn around and flee. John Bunyan makes this point in Pilgrim's Progress wonderfully. Listen to what he says. But now in this valley of humiliation, poor Christian was hard put to it. For he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet with him. His name was Apollyon. And then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he might have no armor for his back, and therefore he thought that to turn the back to him might give him a greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore he resolved to venture and to stand his ground. For, thought he, if I had no more in mine eye than saving my life, it would be the best way to stand. Well, Something's lost here. Oh, there we go. All right. Now, what does this breastplate mean? Which protect, which, what does this breastplate do? Well, it protects your heart, which is the seat of your desires, and it protects your guts, which are the seat of your emotions. And what is this breastplate made of? Well, it's made of righteousness. It's a breastplate of righteousness. Now, once again, there are two possibilities for what this might mean. Most often when the Apostle Paul speaks of righteousness, he's talking about the righteousness or the moral perfections of Christ, which God then credits to the Christian when he or she believes savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God saves you. You come to Jesus and you get dressed in his righteousness. It's not your own, it's still his, but God is looking at you through the lens of Christ. You are clothed with Christ. And God wraps us in Christ's righteousness and He treats us as if we were just as righteous as Christ and this is the basis of our salvation. And of course, there can be no finer protection for anything than to be in a relationship with God that is based on the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to your account. You can never be condemned if you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And this is especially important because Satan is our slanderer. He is the accuser of the brethren. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. And you stay saved by grace alone, through faith alone, clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. But there's also a sense in which we must grow in righteousness 
in our own person, too. The righteousness of Christ that is credited to us at salvation is credited, but it's not actually inside of us. And God has a further work to bring that situation to a place where there is increasingly righteousness inside of us. He wants us to be good, not merely counted as good. Now, that that goodness that we begin to develop is not the basis of our salvation. It's a terrible mistake to try and bring that into salvation, but it is a result of our salvation. It's an infallible effect of our salvation. Just as the cultivation of truth enables us to overthrow Satan's deceits, so the cultivation of righteousness is a way to overthrow Satan's temptation. And Jesus himself talks about this righteousness when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise see the kingdom of God. So that there is the expectation then that you would begin to develop in your inward person as a response to the grace of the Holy Spirit that you would become increasingly righteous. You know, it's a wonderful thing to stand there at the kitchen sink and have all these horrible thoughts that I'm tempted to in my head and all these grouchy things because the dishes are there again. And it's a, it's a good thing not to say anything about that. Not to, not to explode or, or say some snarky thing when somebody walks in the kitchen. Or, you know, like Jordan will always come in when I'm doing dishes and look at me and then put another dish down. Walk away, right? And I just smile. More, please. Give me more. It's good not to let that out, right? It's better than letting it out. But what would it be like not to have it to begin with? That's what we're after. It's not that you can put your heart in a cage while it goes and rages and you're like, shut up, shut up, shut up. It's that your heart no longer rages. That is the righteousness we're talking about. And that is the kind of righteousness that will enable us to resist the devil and to resist his temptation. So which is it? Is it the imputed righteousness of Christ that's ours at justification? Or is it the infused righteousness of Christ that comes to us through sanctification? Well, once again, I don't think we have to choose. G.C. Finley put it this way. The completeness of pardon for past offenses and the integrity of character that belong to the justified life are woven together in an impenetrable mail, an impenetrable armor. Our righteousness, as we grow in righteousness, Jesus says, must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees if we're going to see uh, the kingdom of heaven. Paul puts it another way. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. You may think to yourself, that's kind of scary. Not sure how righteous I am. Well, your righteousness that's inside of you is not the basis of your Christian hope. It's the righteousness of Christ that's your basis of Christian hope. The righteousness inside of you increasing is one of the ways you can say, that's how I know I'm saved. And if you have good evidence that you are saved, then one of the things we need to do is relax a little bit and remember that all of this, as important as it is, 
is still overseen by the Spirit of God. And it's for our good. And it's for His glory. Let me close with just a passage from William Gurnall's The Christian in Complete Armor. Satan's kingdom is a powerful kingdom. And his forces are formidable and are designed against God and man. Though fallen, they are yet angels and have the power and authority of angels. If we get a proper understanding of Satan's power, however, this lion will not appear so fierce. Consider three things. Number one, Satan's power is a derived power. He does not have it of himself, but by God. His power will never hurt you. Would your father give him a sword to mischief his own child? Christ told Pilate that he could do nothing unless given from above. Don't look at the cruel jailer that whips you, but read the warrant and see who wrote it. And at the bottom, you will find your father's hand. Number two, Satan's power is a limited power. He cannot do all he desires. He stands like a dog at the table while the saints feast in comfort. The dog dares not stir for his master's eye is on him. Number three, Satan's power is a ministering power. Appointed by God to serve the saints. When Luther was told what, he, what had been passed against the Protestants, he said it was decreed one way by the council, but differently in heaven. Satan seeks to ruin our graces and destroy our souls, but God's thoughts are comfort and peace. Leviathan thinks to swallow up the saints, but he is sent from God as the whale to Jonah to bring us home safe. God allows his children to fall into temptation, as we do with linen when the spots are washed out by rubbing and laying them out to bleach. So the saints' spots are whitened, under Satan's scouring. We should comfort ourselves that Satan's temptations are for our good. God has given the world with its afflictions, the prince of it too, with all his wrath and power to lead us to our inheritance. It is love and wisdom indeed in a riddle, but you who have the spirit of Christ can unfold it. Are these serious issues? Undoubtedly. Does much hang on our ability to do what God teaches us and tells us we must do? Undoubtedly. Is it all going to be okay one day? Undoubtedly. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer.